Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. Today we're going to talk about community. Joining me in the studio is co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and we have one guest with us today. And our guest is Scott Russell Sanders, who is an author and a, a man who knows much about community. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Scott? Happy to be here. Nice, nice to have you. Mary Catherine? Hi, Bob. I want to do a, a more proper introduction on Scott Sanders. Um, Scott has, 19, has written 19 books, and they include novels and collections of short stories. Uh, but his chief work has been in literary nonfiction, and that includes – I'm just going to name two of the 19 books because these are the two that we have at our house, Staying Put and Writing mm-hmm. from the Center. His work has been published in several magazines and anthologies. He has been awarded fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Lilly Endowment. He has received three honorary degrees and has been honored with Indiana University's highest teaching award as well as the rank of Distinguished Professor here at IU. So that's a little better than just saying you know about community. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I think the way to start out this program, because community is such a large topic, such a big, uh, big topic, we can talk about a lot of different things. But I'd just like to know what you're, how you define that, how you define that term. We use the word community in so many contexts. We talk about a golf community. We talk about an internet community. We talk about our city or our neighborhood as a community. So it's a word that matters to us. It, it carries value. But I think it's used so broadly that it's in danger of losing its meaning. The root of the word community means to exchange or barter. And if you go farther back than that, deeper into the root of the word common, it means next to, beside. So it suggests intimacy. And I think the root understanding of what community is, is it's people living together. A household is a kind of community. A neighborhood is a kind of community. A city is a kind of community. I'm not sure that the Internet can ever have a community <laughs> mm-hmm. in that sense. Or a golf community just suggests that people share an interest in golfing and living next to the course. But it doesn't suggest that they have anything else in common. One of the characteristics of true community, it seems to me, is that people have to learn to get along together. You don't have to like one another. You don't have to be identical. You don't have to approve of everything your neighbors do. But you have to depend on your neighbors, help them out, expect that they will help you out when you're in need. So I I think of community as having to do with the exchange of help and advice and concern with neighbors. Mm-hmm. All right. And we're all neighbors, so. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> As it turns out. The three of us live very close together. <laughs> right. um, how did you, uh, you know, how did, how did your, um, I guess, evolution to your, your intense interest in, in community and the kind of books that you've written, how did, how did that come about? Well, I, f- I have found, Bob, that I have a contrarian imagination that as I look around and I see certain things exaggerated in our society. And so I tend to want to argue for what's being forgotten, what's being ignored. So, for example, you mentioned my book, Staying Put, which Mm -hmm. is about commitment to place, commitment to relationships, commitment to a cause or a profession. And I wrote that book because I see Americans as being obsessed with mobility. If I lived in a society where nobody ever moved, I might have written, <laughs> written a book about, hey, get up. Get up, move around up, a little move. bit. Yeah, that's right. Change around. <laughs> and similarly, I wrote a book called Hunting for Hope because I'm aware of how much despair there is, especially among young people. So in the case of community, I, I came to feel that many of our problems, personal problems, f- problems in family and certainly problems in our, in our society – can be traced to our obsession with individualism, with the private, with, uh, with, one's, with what's good for oneself, really regardless of whether or not it's good for other people or good for the larger community. So the more I, the more I noticed, the more I came to feel that this obsession with individualism and especially 
individual consumption. The more I came to feel that that was at the root of many of our problems, the more I, the more I asked myself, well, what's being left out? And what I think is being left out is a concern for the common good, for what is good for people in general or a community in general. So I came to write about community as a reaction against some of the dominant trends in our culture. Well, you know, we don't want to turn this into a totally political program, but I don't think we can – we don't need to avoid the topic either. You must be – you must sort of go crazy when you look at uh, whenever an election is coming up because it seems it seems to me and this is my own personal view on it that we've become a a, a nation uh, a state and possibly even a community where a lot of times the you know individual desires of the people who are running for office and certain interest groups trump this this uh, need for the common good yes the founders of the united states of course, we're, we're fierce defenders of individual liberty and, and of private property and I share that concern. Uh, I value those things very highly. At the same time, those founders insisted that, a, that a, a concern for private property and individual rights needed to be counterbalanced by a concern for the common good, for the public good. And I think that historically – political figures in the United States, while they have not always lived up to that ideal, have at least voiced that ideal, that, that serving in public office was serving the common good, the public good. We all remember the phrase from John Kennedy's inaugural speech where he said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And whatever one thinks about Kennedy's administration and so forth, Putting that aside for the moment, if you just think about that phrase and imagine any politician saying that today, because implicitly – and this is not a matter of party. It's not a Republican or a Democratic issue. I I think it happens on both sides of the aisle as they say. Implicitly, what politicians say to us as voters is not ask what you can can do for the country. Ask what you can get out of the country. Mm -hmm. What's in it for you? And if you think about it, it's kind of an extension of the consumerism that's sold to us by advertising. So mm-hmm. politics has taken on very much the flavor of advertising, and that seems to me a great loss. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Scott Russell Sanders today. He's uh, an author and a professor here in Bloomington. We're talking about the topic of community. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. If it isn't um, going over things you've written about too much, um, what made you decide to stick to this community? Good question, Mary Catherine. Early in our time here, my wife and I assumed that we would move on. That is, we came out of graduate school. We, We went to graduate school in England. We moved to Bloomington as a young married couple in 1971. She was 24. I was 25. And while we liked the university, we liked the town, we had taken in from our graduate student experiences the assumption Mm -hmm. that in a few years we would move on. That's just what one did. And after a couple of years here, our first child was born. And then four years after that, our second child was born. And my wife and I would fall into conversation and ask one another, well, why exactly were we going to move on? We, we, we love the town. We love mm-hmm. the university. We had good friends here. We, we had good, useful work to do. And after a while, it dawned on me that I had, I had grown up absorbing this unexamined notion that moving on is what one had to do, that somehow if you don't keep moving on, you stagnate. And obviously it's possible if you don't move on to stagnate, but it's not inevitable. And eventually I came to feel that commitment to a place and commitment to a kind of work and commitment to a relationship, in my case, marriage to my wife and fatherhood to my children, that these kinds of commitments actually deepened one's experience of life rather than uh, limiting one. In fact, it was liberating. It, It deepened and enlarged one's sense of being a human being. So I wrote the book, Staying Put, in part out of that discovery, and it was a discovery for me. I didn't understand how much commitment could mean. Well, had my wife and I settled somewhere else in some other university city, 
in all likelihood, I would have put down my roots there. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not unique to Bloomington. There are many wonderful places in this in the United States, obviously. I didn't grow up in a large city. I grew up in small towns and in the country. So Bloomington is a good size for me. Had I grown up in a Chicago, I probably would have needed to move to a larger city. I think that we undervalue in our culture the rewards that come from a long-term involvement with a community, going back to that word again. I remember a friend of mine who had moved to Bloomington from Los Angeles and had been here only a year or so, uh, telling me one day that she felt very uneasy when she went to the grocery store where, because people there recognized her. She ran into people she knew, and that made her uneasy because she was used to a city where mm-hmm. you were always anonymous. And I told her that I actually love that. I, I understand her unease, mm-hmm. but I love that. I love the feeling that when I go to the farmer's market or when I walk to the, the courthouse square or when I go to the public library or walk around campus... I see people whom I know. Some I know well. Some are casual acquaintances. And it makes me feel that this is my home. And I like that feeling. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Um, We have a daughter who's married and living in in Louisville. And she has chosen to live away from home and in a larger um, metropolitan area because she likes this feeling of anonymity, which I can understand. But um, now that she and her husband are discussing having children, she and others uh, of her age are having children, she recognizes now the the benefits of community and those connections um, that you referred to. So um, it is kind of interesting. I think you make a good point that we start out with these expectations that um, you're almost um, not complete if you don't leave. Right. I think it's especially hard for uh, young people who acquire college educations because they tend to take in through conversations, casual remarks, career advising, the notion that to be a success, you have to go far away from home and live in a place quite different from the place where you grow mm-hmm. up, grew up. And, of course, you also have to make a lot of money. That's the other mm-hmm. sign of success. And there, there are certainly reasons why people have to, in some instances, move far away from home to follow the work, to follow a relationship, uh, to pursue additional education. But I think in many instances, young people could, in fact, either return to their home communities or to a community like their home communities. That's what I did. I didn't grow up in southern Indiana, but I grew up in a place like southern Indiana. I think it would be possible for many young people to return to a place like where they grew up and really feel settled there uh, if they allow themselves to realize that to be a success in life means a lot more than the title that you wear at your job or the amount of your paycheck. Mm -hmm. And I'll just mention one other personal connection here, and that is uh, I have two children. My wife and I have two children. The elder of our two children is our daughter, Eva. And she married a young man from Bloomington who went to IU, Matthew Allen. And she earned a Ph.D. in the biology department here at Indiana University. And when she was considering whether to apply for postdocs after her Ph.D., she and her husband were also talking about starting a family. And in the end, what they decided to do was to stay in Bloomington. They bought a house here. Three years ago, their first child was born, and they live four blocks from us. And it's one of the great joys of not just my present life, but my entire life, to be that close to my daughter and son-in-law and my granddaughter. And I know that my wife and I have been of help to them, and they certainly are a constant source of pleasure to us. All right. Again, we're talking to Scott Russell Sanders, an author from Bloomington. If you want to join us on the program today, and uh, we certainly would like to have you, join. Uh, call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. It's the kind of day where if people want to call and talk about their community and what makes it special, it would be perfectly uh, appropriate. And we serve what, 22 counties of mm-hmm. communities, I think. Probably more than that with uh, the transmitters that WFIU has ar- around everywhere. I, oh, oh I, I just wanted to ask, because I, I, you know, I've been here a long time, too, which is odd for a newspaper editor that they have a tendency to, to move around. But Run out of town on a rail. I mean, yeah. <laughs> that that happens yeah. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> gets, gets a little warm and they decide to, to move Ooh, Look at the time. time um, <laughs> but, you know, one, one thing that I've noticed about my time here is how, you know, 
um, there are a lot of people who I count as good friends now, people that I know and I really enjoy being around, who in my early time, maybe my first impression of them was totally different. You know, mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't know them. I just had heard about them. I had not had any kind of personal connection with them. And so there, there are a couple of people who I won't name today that I think are, you know, very good friends of mine that if you told me that, if you told me 10 years ago that they would have been people that I would do a lot of things with, I would have been you know, I would, I would have looked at you askance. Um, I just wondered if that's a, an experience that you've had in Bloomington. Well, we we live in this uh, instant culture, uh, fast food culture, and we want everything to be fast. We want relationships to be fast. We want entertainment to be fast, uh, education to be fast. But I think the most valuable friendships tend to be slow. That is, we may have a initial impression that attracts us to a person or interests us in a person or maybe even just mildly intrigues us. But over time, if we allow that relationship to develop, friendship can become something much deeper uh, than just being buddies or being uh, uh, rich acquaintances, but can deepen into, uh, into something that is, again, profoundly rewarding. And only by Commitment, I think, and long-term involvement with a com- particular community is that possible. I think Bloomington is a place that 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 nurtures such friendships, but I'm sure they could happen anywhere. When you think about one's own security, what it is that it makes one feel. Uh, safe and protected in the world. Police matter, obviously, at some level, even the U.S. military matters. But finally, the fundamental source of security in our lives is the people who care about us. It may be a person we're married to or living with. It may be neighbors. It may be colleagues. But finally, we are only as secure as our relationships. Mm -hmm. And friendship is, is key to that. If one falls ill, if one loses one's job, if one's marriage breaks up, if, if one of any number of losses occur in one's life, you ask yourself, who are the people who would care? Right. And if, there are, if there's a core of people whom you could name, then you have a sense of, of security. On the other hand, if you say, well, I could hire a psychiatrist, you know, I could hire a physician, I could hire a helper, uh, you know, I have money and therefore I could pay people to look after me, I think you feel radically less secure. I would rather have friends than money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And those people don't, don't take your call at 3 o'clock in the morning. That's, in, that's true. All right. We have a phone call and I know we have an email as well. So mm-hmm. let's go to the phone first. And Mark, Mark, go ahead. Uh, Professor Sanders, hi. I'm a big fan of yours. Um, thank, thank you. I, I wanted to challenge you a little bit. I'm wondering if, if it's just if it's easy to talk about Bloomington, about about being in love with Bloomington because it's a special town. Uh, it's what social scientists might call selection bias, um, with its with its cultural offerings and its great diversity and the university. What if we were in um, um, another town in Indiana? Let's call it East. Lebanon, and it's just an ordinary town with big box stores. Let's say it sort of consisted of what you would see on College Mall Road or South Walnut, and that was about it. Uh, it didn't have the kinds of things that we have in Bloomington. Would, would we be hearing the same comments from you about sense of place and, and the affection that, that you have and, and the ease with which you can stay in, in a place as you've done? That's a, an excellent question and also observation, Mark, and I agree with the thrust of it. I couldn't live in any commu- just, just any community in the state of Indiana or in the United States. Uh, that's why when I was talking about uh, the imagining if my wife and I had settled in some other university town, I used that phrase because I recognize that a university, the presence of a university, especially a large, diverse one, such as Indiana University in Bloomington, the presence of a university creates cultural opportunities and has many other kinds of impacts on the town, including, for example, I think probably improving the average quality of schools, uh, that a community without a a university presence would lack. Uh, So I accept that point. But at the same time, I 
believe that people living in any town or in any city or in any neighborhood of a large city still derive much of their well-being from their relations with friends and neighbors. And there are, in fact, community efforts underway in places that you or I might not imagine being able to live in just because uh, we're outsiders and we, we look look at a place that, such as the place that you, uh, you know, your hypothetical East Lebanon, did you say? Lebanon. Lebanon, okay. <laughs> East Lebanon, such as your hypothetical East Lebanon. We look at that and we, we don't see what's there. But there can still be family there. There can still be worship communities there. There can be good and meaningful work. A person might be a farmer. A person might be a pharmacist or a physician or a minister or any other number of things, a local school teacher, and feel rewarded by that work. I don't want to idealize uh, all human settlements and pretend that any human settlement is going to have the qualities that I value in Bloomington. Of course they wouldn't. Um, so I so I accept the point. At the same time, community itself, however we find it, however we make it, is valuable wherever it appears. I spent a portion of the last two weeks on an island in the Aegean Sea, a Greek island called Paros, meeting with some other writers from other countries. And the popu- population of this little village where we were staying was probably no more than five or six hundred there were very few cultural attractions. There was a, a, a one little school. There was no public library. There was only one shop in town, which was a little grocery store. And yet I dare say that the people of that village, many of whom we met during our time there, have a rich cultural life, which, much of which arises out of their regard for their neighbors and their sense of their, great, their greater cultural inheritance. One of the impoverishments of smaller communities in the United States is the, a, a side effect of the mass media because it has undermined the development, the flourishing of local culture. What we get from the mass media is a kind of corporate culture that is piped out around the planet and piped into East Lebanon. It's also, of course, piped into Bloomington, Indiana. And unless a community has a certain uh, critical mass of, of cultural institutions, as Bloomington clearly does, it's very difficult to resist the homogenizing effect of those global media. All right, Mark, thanks a lot for the call. Thank you very much. All right, 855-0811-877-285-9348, and noon at indiana.edu. We're going to go to one more phone call before we take a break. So Steve is next. Steve? Yeah, I, uh, I would just be interested in Professor Sanders' comments really related to the last one, and that is uh, the essential quality, I think, of having your own community reflected back to you through artists. I know my own teenagers even though they sense that at some point they may move away at least for a while, I think there's this level of almost subconscious cool attached to their own community that movies like Breaking Away or that John Mellencamp or other bands have lived here, written about this town, um, and come from the town. And it seems to me, you mentioned Greece. Greece has had a great deal of literature reflecting life in Greece. And I'm just curious if you could give some comments about the importance of artists reflecting back the community to its inhabitants. You've said it as well as I can, Steve. I agree that it's it's essential for communities to have local writers, local photographers, painters, playwrights, puppet theater, empresarios, uh, dancers, on and on and on, to have people who make art in their own community, at least some of which has to do with the community. I'm not saying that if one lives in Bloomington that one can only write about Bloomington. One can write about whatever interests one. But at least part of one's work, it seems to me, ought to, as you say, reflect back the community to the people who live there. It's a kind of, it's a kind of putting a place on the intellectual and the artistic map. And Bloomington is obviously blessed with great musicians, uh, with people talented in many different art forms with many writers. But a smaller community or a community that didn't have the university in it, going back to Mark's point, the previous caller's point, would not be as richly endowed as 
Bloomington is with artists, but every community needs local artists and it needs to support them. One of the challenges that Midwestern artists of all sorts, including writers, have to contend with is a general Midwestern cultural insecurity, wondering whether if this artist, this writer, this painter, this dancer were really any good, whether he or she would actually be in the Midwest as opposed to in some big city somewhere. Uh, that's a challenge to local artists, but it's, it's – and one has to contend with that. But I agree with your point that it's vital to have local artists reflecting on their own communities. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. There's a certain validation to that, isn't there? There is, Of absolutely. your community. Well, when you think about the artists and various, uh, various things like uh, dance and music and writing that we have here in Bloomington, and I think it speaks well for itself. So we, we have reached our, our break time. So uh, you're listening to Noon Edition and our interview, our discussion with Scott Russell Sanders. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. Now you can be eligible to win an iPod and support public radio at the same time. Make a pledge online at wfiu.indiana.edu between now and June 8th. When you do, you'll automatically be entered to win an iPod Nano courtesy of the IU Bookstore. No pledge needed to enter. Visit our website at wfiu.indiana.edu to learn more. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and Scott Russell Sanders is here with us today. He's an author and professor at uh, Indiana University and we're talking about the the topic of community. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. And I think we, we do have an email. We have an email. Uh, it says, if a business discriminates against its gay and lesbian employees by offering them a lesser wage benefits package than it would offer its straight employees, uh, like spousal support but not domestic partner benefits, how would you evaluate that business's commitment to community? The acceptance, the em- embrace of all members of a society, a town, a business, a university, on equal legal footing seems to me vital to the sense of community. If certain categories of people, however the categories are defined by gender, by sexual orientation, by race, by ethnicity, religion, whatever, if certain categories of people are singled out for for special treatment, then it undermines the sense of our, uh, of community, of our being uh, involved in a shared enterprise. So I think that um, I think that to discriminate um, against people on the basis of sexual orientation is akin to discriminating to them uh, against them uh, on the basis of any other way we might categorize people. Okay. All right, we have a phone call, so let's go to the phone and Charlie. Charlie? Hello, Scott. Hi, Charlie. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Uh, Bloomington's a sports town, and some people may be surprised to know that uh, that you like sports. I know you and I both supported our kids in their sports activities. And I, I think there's uh, some important connections between sports and community problems that I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on. It seems like uh, in an earlier time, amateur athletics was an important ingredient of community spirit. Mm. And and nowadays, uh, with the power of TV and marketing, professional sports uh, 
has diminished a great deal, I think, of some of the sports support. Uh, You know, maybe even part of the issue with high school basketball at the state level. So I'm interested in that. That's one question. The second question is, though, um, an area that local sports has flourished in is children's sports and youth sports, and we're both active in that. But there are those that say that as that has grown in um, sophistication and strength, that we now have fewer and fewer young adults involved in civic activities, that they're just so involved with children's and youth sports that uh, that is their sole civic activity. Well, thank so. you. Thank you for the questions. You're quite right that uh, I, I love sports, although I don't watch them much. Uh, I don't watch them at all on television. And I haven't watched much local sports since my son, who was the real athlete in our family, uh, graduated from college and, and moved on. He was a soccer player and a basketball and a baseball player. Uh, I, to take up each of your points in turn, I do feel that sports at all levels, college sports, amateur local sports, have been damaged by the professional sports model, the model which seems to to uphold uh, high salaries, extravagant lifestyles, uh, winning at any cost, whether by abusing one's body with drugs or by cheating, uh, by corking bats or uh, by uh, continually moving teams so that your own record can be improved even though your teams will suffer. I think pro sports have damaged the the culture of sports at all levels. You see it in, in college basketball. You see it to some extent in college football. And I even see and hear about uh, children in the younger ages imitating pro athletes and taking on their worst mannerisms. And to go back to what I said earlier in the program about this tension between a regard for the individual and a regard for the group or the community, I think we have so exaggerated the celebrity status of individuals in professional sports that we are undermining the whole sense of team effort. We make noises about team effort, but really what we celebrate and what we put on the on the front pages of our sports sections is uh, is the celebrity of individuals. On your second point, are so many children involved in sports that they that the too few uh, children are becoming involved in other aspects of the community life. I can't speak to that. I don't have numbers in front of me. But insofar as it's the case that children devote all of their outside-of-school time and energy to sports, I think it's a a loss. It's it's certainly a loss to the individual child, and it's definitely a loss to the community. You think about the many other things that children have to forego if they give all of their energy into playing sports 12 months a year. Music, dance, theater, visual arts, uh, writing, reading, uh, volunteering at the community kitchen, volunteering uh, at, at any one of a uh, hundred other worthy causes and locations in Bloomington. And I say both the child suffers who foregoes all of those other opportunities in order to put all of his or her energy in sports, and also the community suffers. And it does make me wonder, especially with the emphasis on individualism in sports, it does make me wonder what sort of future citizens they will be if they have spent their childhood trying to amass uh, their own personal record in basketball or baseball or soccer or whatever their chosen sport. So I would certainly urge parents to think long and hard before they encourage their sons and daughters to invest all of their time, all of their energy, all of their efforts outside of school in sports. When I played sports as a boy, it was a really radically amateur undertaking. You played sports mm-hmm. in the season in which the sport occurred. Nowadays, uh, children will, will train for 12 months a year for one sport. And that's a kind of early professionalism of sports that seems to me to 
not, not healthy for children and not healthy for the community. All right, Charlie. Thanks a lot thanks for the for call. Thanks for calling, Charlie. <laughs> All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. We I, do have another call. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Oh, uh, you can jump in next. All right. Thanks. All right. We have Haley. <laughs> Haley. Hi. Hi, Haley. Go ahead. Um, I uh, just have moved back to Bloomington. I grew up here um, and moved back after 25 years of vagabond life. Uh, kind of motivated by the similar things um, your guest was talking about. And um, I've lived, I lived in Berkeley, in Washington, D.C., in Chicago, and now that I've returned here, I've found a lot of the good things about community that you mentioned before, meeting people you know in the grocery store and the friendships and uh, links that go very deep. But I've also noticed at the times I've lived in small town Indiana, I've also I taught in South in at Notre Dame for a while as well. That there are some bad things that can come with a strong sense of community. That um, you know, no place else I've ever lived when I was living in all of these big cities did I hear so, about uh, racist incidents, hate crimes. You overhear people saying things just uh, about gays, you know, and I, I can only think that maybe these kind of attitudes come from never being exposed to anyone who isn't like you and not having to ever examine your own, uh, you know, preconceptions. And I wonder if that doesn't come from perhaps you know, an overly insular community. And this may not be the case with the university community by any means, but there are people who never and want and contact or engage with people who aren't like them. And I wonder if the speaker could address maybe some of the negative things that can come from a strong sense of community. Or maybe I'm just completely wrong in sensing that. I... No, I, I don't think you're wrong at all, Haley, in sensing that, specifically about Bloomington or about communities in general. It's been very the... disappointing because, you know, I'm considering staying here, and and yet I know that's something that probably will not go away. Well, let me just take up the, the, your last remark and then work my way back through your, your observations, which are very useful observations. One way to re- respond to a sense that a community is not what you would like it to be is to move somewhere else so you find a more appropriate community, and I can understand that impulse. Another response, response is to change the community. If some aspect of Bloomington bothers you or bothers anyone else, uh, get together with other people who are also bothered by it and change it. Uh, well, you know, I've been doing that. I, I work for a, a group, volunteer with a group that helps low-income aid patients in town and things like that. But to be honest, that's the fact that I'm doing that and trying to make the world more hospitable for people who are marginalized by certain parts of the community. Unfortunately, that is never going to change those people's minds. And I have to admit that, you know, there is some, there are things, there are people who don't want to change and will not change no matter how much I volunteer. You're perfectly right. Many people here and elsewhere all around the planet are fixed in their prejudices and, and will not change no matter how hard their neighbors work to change them. Uh, I grant that. At the same time, again, one, one still has this choice. Do you keep moving around until you find a community where you feel completely at ease, in which case you have found a community where everybody is alike in some fundamental way, or do you accept that all communities are imperfect and within the, within the limits of one's own life work to change that community. But let me take up your very important point about the dangers of insularity. Any group, a community, a city, a religious sect, certainly a family, any group may become tribal 
That is, it may come to see those who are outside as as other or as in some way inferior or in some way threatening. So the dark side of a close-knit community, not just in Bloomington but anywhere, the dark side is uh, ethnocentrism, is the, the view that those who are not like you are threatening or are in, in some way or another inferior. And that is a danger that anyone who's committed to any place needs to be aware of, and I certainly am aware of that as a danger in Bloomington. I'm aware of it as a danger besetting any community. At the same time, it is not the case that simply because people encounter people different from themselves, that they live, they're more broad-minded automatically and more forgiving and more loving and more accepting. People mm-hmm. all around the world who live in, in heterogeneous settlements uh, right today are killing one another, even though mm-hmm. they have been deeply familiar with people who belong to a different religious sect or belong to a, a, or have a different sexual orientation. Um, so we should not, we should not romanticize the, the effects of living in a mixed community because that doesn't guarantee yeah. that people will be tolerant. Nor should we romanticize the, the perfect idyllic small community because that certainly does not guarantee uh, openness to outsiders or even harmony with one's neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So where do you think these, these negative dark things come from? Are, uh, is it independent of a sense of community then? This is an enormous topic. <laughs> we could talk about where where hatred and fear and paranoia uh, and vengefulness come from, and uh, obviously we can't address that in any adequate way within the scope of this program. I'd come back and talk about that another day if the hosts wanted me to, but let me just say something briefly, and that is each of us has in us the capacity to be self-centered, to be narrow-minded, to be intolerant. We have that capacity and, and, to, and to be violent because of all of those limitations. And, and that's demonstrated in the news every day. We also, each of us has the capacity to be compassionate, to feel empathy for other human beings, uh, to be curious about other human beings, to be tolerant, uh, to be welcoming to other human beings. So what we need to do are to devise forms of culture, forms of education, forms of art that nurture our compassionate and cooperative and tolerant sides mm-hmm. rather than constantly appeal to our selfish and self-centered and violent sides. And unfortunately, and again, this is an enormous topic, all I can do is state my view. Unfortunately, I think that American popular media, advertising, films, popular music, most television program, overwhelmingly emphasizes violence, egotism, narcissism, and selfishness. Now, that's an enormous claim. I realize that. And many no, people think would think right. of exceptions. Uh, but so we live in a culture, we live in a culture that makes standards. compassion hard yeah. to sustain. There, uh, it, it also, though, I mean, for, it depends, I guess, from what perspective you're talking about the viewer being in because it also, you know, lets people know it's not okay to beat up gays. You mean and the media? Things like that. Oh, sure. I mean, that comes from the media also. Sure. And, uh, but I, I see your point about, about self-speaking being detrimental to uh, community values in general. All right, Haley, we're going to move on. Okay. Thank, thank you thank very you. much for your comments and your, your thoughts and your questions. Here's another email that came in. Um, as a counterbalance to the leading question earlier emailed um, regarding employers who differenti- differentially treat certain employees, I would pose the query. Is it possible, indeed likely, that the notion of community is not adverse to nor inconsistent with the role of individual choice? i.e. latitude to exercise freedom. And then um, our writer adds an explanatory note. Uh, He says, I'm currently reading the Thomas Schelling's uh, Micromotives and Macro Behavior, which illustrates how people don't have all the same tolerance profiles and that even quite modest differentials can and do lead to sorting or segregation of groups from one another. 
If I understand the question, and I may not understand the question, uh, what what the email uh, writer is asking is, is it, isn't it natural in some way for humans to sort themselves out into groups? Well, if you go into a cafeteria on the Indiana University campus, many faculty notice this and are disturbed by it. Often you will see all of the African-American students sitting together, all of the Asian students, and of course Asian students includes a huge array of nationalities and ethnicities, uh, Muslim students sitting together, uh, quote-unquote white or Caucasian students sitting together. No one enforces this code, but it's an unwritten um, cultural practice that does disturb a lot of people. On the other hand, shouldn't people be free to associate with those persons whom they feel most comfortable with? Obviously, I don't think we should have a rule about who sits with whom in a cafeteria. Uh, I, I do regret the tendency of, again, I'm just talking about students, not just on our campus. I have seen it in many other campuses that I have visited. I do regret the tendency of students to identify pretty narrowly on the basis of ethnicity or race. Uh, rather than to see that there are many other grounds on which human beings could develop relationships, which might be intellectual grounds or foods they like or the art they like or whatever. Uh, I regret that. On the other hand, I uh, absolutely honor the, the right of individuals to consort with the people whom they choose to consort with. Where I resist it is when... For example, a subdivision says, well, we all here want to be white and we don't want people of color living in our subdivision. So there, your sense of affinity with those people you'd prefer to be with entails excluding people who are different from the model that you've set up. It's, there's this delicate balance and it's very hard to maintain between preserving the rights and the interests of individuals and preserving a concern for the common good. This, this balance is, as I say, very difficult to maintain. I think right now in our society, uh, in many ways, we have so exaggerated the importance of, of the private, of individual consumption, of private property, that we have really lost a sense of the common good. All right, we only have four or five minutes to go. Uh, Mary Catherine, you were starting to ask something earlier. Do you remember what that was? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I was just going to say I had a funny experience recently in, in Target. There were some um, people who looked like uh, possibly recent IU graduates, in it, but from overhearing their conversation, it sounded like they'd gone been away for a couple of years. And they were back in town, it seemed, for a wedding, and they had gotten the wedding registry, the gift registry at Target, and were pursuing a, a gift for the happy couple. And they were talking about how weird it was to be back in Bloomington. And, and one of them had an experience that he described as, oh, it was just so Bloomington. And the other one who's on a cell phone says, man, I forgot what Bloomington was like. This is just wild. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wonder um, how you respond to, to that kind of, uh, to, to those kinds of questions, comments rather. Oh, Mary Catherine, it's striking that this was happening in Target. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a chain store, which I thought was hilarious. Because probably the products and even the displays in the store and were And certainly the registry identical. would have been available across the, yes, the nation. Yes, you, you could have gone to one, the same store in a thousand other locations. So there must have been something else. It must have been either the people they saw or maybe they heard cicadas or something <laughs> in the parking lot as they walked in. Or maybe there was a certain humidity in the air. It's always hard to know what makes people feel at home about Bloomington or about what, wherever they feel at home. The, that may be their college community. It may be the place where they, they grew up. One quality that Bloomington has, I think, uh, that, that is distinctive. There are certainly other places that have it, but it's not common. One quality that Bloomington has is a kind of a serious friendliness. Uh, clerks will be... Uh, typically not only polite but will actually say hello to you as if they want to say hello to you. They're not just performing some uh, corporate task. I travel a lot to give readings and give talks around the country and there certainly are friendly communities elsewhere. 
But there are also an awful lot of cold places in Bloomington, in in, in the United States, places where uh, merchants and and uh, travel clerks and so forth are quite eager to separate you from your money, but they're not really interested in interacting with you as a human being. And I, I am almost always dealt with as a human being in Bloomington, and I can't assume that all other people will be treated the same way with the same degree of friendliness, but I certainly value that. All right. We have about two minutes to go. We have Helga that wants to get on. Helga, if you can make it quick. Yes, Scott, this is Helga Keller calling, and I just want to thank you for your wonderful books. They have been great companions in all kinds of walks of life for our own family, and recently I needed to go to Germany to be with my mother, and your private history of awe was a treasured and most valuable companion on my trip. So I just want to say thank you for all your ideas. Well, thank you, Helga. I want the listeners to know I did not ask you to call <laughs> with that very, very kind and generous comment. One of my great pleasures is to feel that my books have been of use to my fellow citizens in Bloomington, as well as, of course, readers elsewhere. And so I very much appreciate that comment. Well, we are about out, we are out of time, really. Uh, I do want to mention, though, since Helga brought it up, A Private History of Awe is uh, Scott Russell Sanders' current book. And you said you're working on another book. Can you just give a little preview, just t- 10 seconds? The next book I'm working on is called Defending the Common Wealth. So I'm, it's all about community and the public good. All right. Well, I want to thank Scott Sanders for being here. It was, it was truly a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, we had two producers today, Claire Deedy and Catherine Hegeman, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zalzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.